this broad topic, Calvinism, Arminianism, and the truth. Uh, put that out there just to intrigue you, right? Maybe to make you a little, have a little tension. Are you saying one of those or both of those other things are wrong? Well, uh, we want to compare all things to Scripture, amen? And that's what we're going to try to do tonight. And we'll just make it as far as we can. And then um, what I'll do, Mr. Wayne had a good idea. I'll just give you the notes from last the time we talked about, what was that, election? Is that the recording, the tape that got messed up back there, I think? The tape. I'm dating myself here. Uh, the recording that stopped. Um, we can put all those notes maybe together and make them available for you. A lot of great information out there to do research. There's a lot of information out there that is not worth your time doing the research. There's a lot of tainted, slanted opinion out there. And so what we try to do here is to keep our opinions to a minimal uh, or to a nil, a nothing, and try to just stick with what God's Word says, even when or if we have to change what we think. For instance, this is a great quote I want to start with tonight. Is uh, Brandon back there? Yeah, okay. I couldn't see you. I got you. Uh, this is from The Death Christ Died. Whoa, this is by Robert P. Leitner. And um, Robert P. Leitner would consider himself, I'll just go ahead and tell you, a four-point Calvinist, if you have to use that term, uh, or Amaraldian, if you prefer that term. Um, but as you'll see, uh, there's a, be a better term. Look at there, uh, up here at the screen. The desire and goal of the child of God must not be adherence to a humanly constructed system simply for the sake of tradition or church relations. Let us be biblicists above everything else and at all costs. And when and where this position conflicts with man-made systems of theology, let it be. And I would hope we could all say amen to that, Yes. It's the Word of God that's first and foremost. I think sadly in many of the circles that some of us have been in uh, in the past and probably still rubbing some elbows currently, um, I think some people miss, in a misguided sense, not in a sinful sense per se, but just in a misguided sense, I think oftentimes we, we elevate the system of theology over God and over theology itself, if that makes sense. And so we're going to try to push through some of that. Uh, I'm a rebel, usually without a clue, but tonight I have a, a cause. So I am a rebel with a cause tonight, and it's just to help us be biblicists first and foremost. And so uh, that's the goal. So we're going to have fun, and it will be fun. There will be some hard stuff, and we may not all agree on everything, and that's all right. Uh, we all have the right to be right or wrong. And so we can choose which of those we want to be. Um, but where we disagree, just know we won't all be right. Uh, we could all be wrong, but we won't all be right, certainly. Uh, and I think when we get to heaven, we'll realize just how off base all of our theologies probably are. Amen? Uh, when we are with God, with Jesus face to face. But uh, we're going to do some true and false, and I think it'll be fun. <laughs> no, I really do. I think it'll be fun. So let's go to the first thing. True or false, number one. And I think most of these are probably in your handout. But the eternal destiny of men, according to the Bible, is not determined by the extent of the atonement or by man's relationship to Adam and his sin, but by man's relationship to Jesus Christ who died for sin and sins, which is the root and the fruit of sin. All right? That's the idea. So true or false? True or false? True. I would agree that that is a true statement. You see, anywhere that we could word anything a little better, perhaps, pertaining to this topic, not throwing in tulip and all those other pieces, right? But just, I mean, this is pretty straightforward, I think. Amen? True. Straightforward truth. Here's a few proof texts for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. In fact, if you want to just jot these down, the next one is Romans 6, 10. 
Romans 5, 6, Romans 5, 8. I'm just going to begin here. So, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. The word is protos. Uh, it means priority. This is the priority issue. And what is it? He says, It's what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, the question that people raise is, Who is the ours that he mentions? Anyone? What is it? The ones who God saved? The world? So those are two, two different things. What? Yeah. So who was the letter written to? The church at Corinth. That's always important. All right? And so as you read through 1 Corinthians, I believe he's talking to the church in Corinth here specifically. Does that negate any other extension of salvation there? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But he's talking to a particular group here. I think that's fair to assume. Um, there's absolutely other cases where very particular or very broad categories are in view. We're going to look at some of those. But he says the most important thing is that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That's important. Amen? So if we're, if we're Calvinists or Arminianists or Calvinists, I was introduced to a couple weeks ago. Never heard of that, really. Um, or Amraldian, or just if we call ourselves Christian, uh, which isn't bad in this day and age, right? Um, but wherever we may fall in these in these ideologies, we need to understand that the most important thing is that Christ died for our sins. Amen. And on that, we should all agree on the all, all Christians should agree on that. Romans six ten, Paul also writing says, for the death that he died, meaning Christ, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So Christ died, he died to sin once and for all. What is the intent behind what Paul is saying there? Christ died for sin first, and everyone else has to die after him? Christ died for sin, and that's the final death for sin. Once for all. Is that, is that fair? I mean, it's, it's biblical. Is that fair? Okay. So that's, that's, um, um, lost my train of thought. That's, that's important to, to understand. Christ died for sin once and for all. So no longer is there a sacrifice needed for sin. Amen. All right. Here's the next verse. Romans 5, 8. Oh, oh, before we get there. 5, 5, 6. For while, um, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, while we were still helpless, Paul counts himself in there, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So who are the ungodly? Everybody here, right? And everyone that's not here, right? Um, make, sure, make sure they're okay, please. Romans 5, 6, at the right time, Christ died for the godly. I mean, the ungodly. Now note, it does not say the elect in this passage. There are verses that talk about the elect. But here, it doesn't say anything about the elect. It says the ungodly. Now, here's another just pop quiz. This one isn't in your handout or on the screen. Would the elect be part of the ungodly? What's that? They were. Okay. So... I'm glad you said it that way. 
Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 again. We won't get through because I'm chasing a rabbit already. Ephesians 1. Verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So, were the elect godly or ungodly before the foundation of the world? Huh? We were ungodly. I said we because I'm saved. So, um, I don't mean that boastfully or anything, but thank God. Um, but all the elect were at some point ungodly, right? We weren't born. We weren't created in holiness and perfection. We were born in sin. So at some point we were all ungodly. That's important. That gets lost, I think, in some of the debating that goes on in our books and our seminaries and in our churches, sadly. But that's important. So Romans 5.8 then goes on to say, but God demonstrates, so, so back to 5.6, Christ died for the ungodly, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So as an elect one, before I came to Christ, I was a sinner. Amen? And so Christ died for me in that part of my condition, right? I'm trying to just say this in different ways, but did that make sense how I worded that? Okay. All right. So are you still with me? Are we good? Any conflict so far? Oh, I thought you said yes. Okay, I'm sorry. No. Okay. All right. I'm not prepared for conflict yet. Okay. Um, this is supposed to be the part we all agree on. All right. So question. Here's the next question. That's just a joke. That's a question. Did Christ die for sinners? Yes. All right. Did, I don't, and I don't think anybody in any theological sphere really would argue with that unless they're just outside of the realm of Christendom. Okay. Next question. Did Christ die for the elect? Yes. We have verses that say that as well. So both of those things are true. Are they true in the same way at the same time? They are. I mean, they really are. Christ, when Christ died, He died for the ungodly, which is everybody, and the elect who had been chosen before the foundation of the world. Those are not contradictory things. The elect were part of the ungodly before the foundation of the world and in time until we were saved. Does that make sense? This just rocked me when I, when I finally was able to think through this in this kind of way. Um, this is Christianity. This is Christianity. And there are some that, that start trying to dig so deeply into this that they wind up straying from that simple fact that the elect and the ungodly are in the same group originally. Okay, And then God, what does God do? He, Ephesians 1, He chooses some before the foundation of the world. What pool does He choose them from? From the elect or from the ungodly? From the ungodly. That's the only group there is in eternity past, right? Okay, so I know this may seem elementary, but let's keep going. So Christ died for sinners, Christ died for the elect. True or false now? Christ died to secure the salvation of all. What's that? Who says false? And look, we're a family here, and so it's okay if, we're, if we make a mistake. Okay? Who says it's true? It's okay. Own it. Go ahead. All right. Good. Several hands went up. Miss Polly's hand went up. Okay. Good. All right. Okay. Hold on to that for just for a minute. True or false? We're going to come back. I promise. 
Christ died to secure the salvation of those who believe, the elect. Anybody think that's false? Everyone think that's true? Okay, that's true. Christ died to secure the salvation of all those who believe. Okay, one more and then we'll go back. True or false? Christ died to secure the salvation of those who believe, the elect only. Or Christ died only to secure the salvation of those who believe, the elect. Oh, uh, no secure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I just gave it away. Christ died only for the salvation of those who believe the elect. That's false. Uh, okay, this statement's false. I messed it up by saying the word secure. So go back to the first question. First true or false right there in that, in that little set. Christ died to secure the salvation of all. That's false. And here's why. If Christ died to secure the salvation of all, and this, this is why I think that we're really a lot of times way closer to agreeing with each other than we are apart. We don't all use the right terminology. Okay, or we, we define words slightly different. But Christ, if Christ died to secure right, the salvation of all, then He failed miserably because all do not get saved. Does that make sense? But He died to make provision for all. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But are we good so far? All right. So again, that last one, Christ died to secure the salvation of those who believe the elect only. That's, that's false. So Christ died to secure the salvation of all those who believe the elect. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's my conviction. Um, it's, it's something that men here in the church and some of the elders and, and, and we various ones have, have discussed. Um, but it's, it's a conviction that the Bible teaches that Christ died to provide a basis of salvation for all men. But he did not secure salvation for all men. And this is a doctrine of antiquity. This is a doctrine that predates John Calvin, Jacob Arminius, Beza, all of them. I mean, it, it does. And, and I, I believe that. I, I also will go on to say that to those who are elect and who therefore believe in Christ, this provision secures for them their eternal salvation when they believe. Chosen before the foundation of the world, secured when they believe. Are we good? Does that make sense? And we still haven't really strayed from what some might call Calvinism yet. Some might call Calvinism. We still haven't strayed from that. That's still within that realm, that camp. It goes on, I would say this. For those who do not believe and thus evidence the fact that they are the non-elect, the provisions exist as a basis of their condemnation. And I think that's real clear in John 3, 16 through 18. The cross is condemnation for those who don't believe. And that's something that a lot of the, the headline Calvinists today don't wrestle with. I, 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 just, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. I think it's something that we should rightly wrestle with, however. I think it'll help us to be biblicists rather than putting a different label on ourselves in this day and time. But speaking of this ideal then, um, that Christ died to secure the salvation of the elect only... Uh, I would say that's wholeheartedly rejected by Scripture. And so we would wholeheartedly reject it as well. He did die to secure the salvation of the elect, but he did not die for the elect only. Does that make sense? He died for humanity. And we can continue to make that case as we go here tonight. 
Um, but again, if he died only for the elect, the cross would no longer be the basis of condemnation for those who do not believe. And that's John 3.18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the cross of Calvary, Jesus and his person and what he did to secure salvation for us is the criterion, if you will, for what we believe, right? Christ died for our sins or he didn't. Christ died for his sins, our sins, I mean, not his, he was sinless. He died for our sins in totality or we add something to it. I mean, that's what's at, at stake. And only biblical Christianity says that there's no works for us to do, okay? And so that's true Christianity. But here's another true or false. We're going to keep building. I know we're starting to like, mm, okay, but just hold on. Here's another one. True or false. If, uh, if Christ died, oh, did I skip one? Okay, if Christ died only for the elect, then the cross as a basis of condemnation is void. If Christ died only for the elect, then the cross as the basis of condemnation, according to John 3.18, is void. How many would say that's true? How many would say it's false? Okay, that's a true statement. That's a true statement. If he died only for the elect, the cross was only for the elect. Does that make sense? So am I confusing you guys more by doing it this way, or is this helpful? This was helpful to me, thinking it through in this process. So I'm, I'm hoping it helps, helps you. I don't want to muddy the waters, I promise. Um, Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And, we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll cover that again. That's right. We were condemned prior to the cross. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Save. That's right. Yeah. So that may could be worded better. But yes, sir. That's right. That's right. It, to all of that. That's right. That's right. That's good. All right. So here's another true or false. And I think it was already up there. So you're already formulating your answers. For human beings to be saved, God must convict the sinner with, uh, of his or her sin and give the sinner the gift of grace, faith, salvation. True or false? Anybody think false? That's true. That's true. So, what again is the gift that God gives us? Answer is on the screen. <laughs> it's all of that. It's by grace, through faith, and that results in our salvation. All of that's a gift from God. I mean, that's the idea, right? And so, the whole thing is a gift from God. And so, God doesn't just save us automatically. I dream of genie style or anything else, right? We have to believe. Amen? And it's, that belief is even not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 talks about that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So for the person to be saved, he must or she must respond to the God-given conviction of sin and believe God and God's testimony about Jesus and about our condition as the means by which God's grace and salvation is to be accessed. Does that make sense? Now... 
Think about this in terms of some of the modern, more um, name it and claim it, health and wealth, uh, just more seeker-friendly kind of evangelism that happens today. And and, um, I, I was trying to get around just saying his name, but think about your Lakewood Church kind of mentality, okay? It's, it's, it's all across Christendom, that, that mentality is. But the ideas that are shared are basically that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and He wants the best for you. He wants this to be your best life now. So all you have to do is believe in Him. I mean, that's kind of the gospel presentation that gets presented. Uh, that goes back, that was, I mean, it goes back real far, but I can remember um, being captivated with the ideal uh, of the seeker-sensitive movement early on in my ministry and, and the purpose-driven life stuff, all that when it came out. It finally dawned on me reading through it again um, after a couple years afterwards that there was nothing about repentance in any of that whole, whole theology. It was all that God has a wonderful plan for you. Just believe in Him and everything's going to be great. That was kind of the... Now I made that a little more fluffy maybe than it, it's worded, but that's the gist of it. And so when, when we think about, about God saving us by grace through faith and that salvation, grace, and faith, all of that being a gift from God, that means, as we just mentioned, that God then has to convince us of who He is, who Jesus is, who we are apart from Him, and why He had to die. That's why when you see people presenting the fact, uh, well, and, and we do it too, our, our tracks out there always tell the condition of us without God. Um, we've got some real simple ones that we got from Grace Church, um, the, uh, what it means to be a Christian, those tracks. It starts with, um, well, it's, there's two versions of it actually, but one of them starts with God and His holiness, and it gets right to man and His non-holiness, right? Our sinful estate. And then it... It makes that case that he's perfect, we're not, but perfection's demanded. And so God provides the sacrifice to pay for our sin so that we therefore can be holy and live righteously. Does that make sense? So without the man is sinful part, we lose what the gospel really is, the necessity of it. Does that make sense? And so the reformers rightly, rightly, and this started in the 10 hundreds um, with um, um, the morning star. Was it Wycliffe, right? John Wycliffe started, I mean, back that far, they were seeing the futility of trying to be good enough in the works-based religion called Catholicism to attain to holiness, to, to be perfect enough to go, or good enough to go to heaven. And so as they began to read the scripture, they began even back then in, in ten, the, the thousands, ten, I think it was like 1091 maybe, um, when that really kind of hit the, hit the ground. But uh, Wycliffe and then all the reformers after them, they rightly brought back the sinful condition of man and the great extent that God went to in order to provide salvation for us. Well done, right? I mean, we would not be here if it wasn't for what the Reformers did. Now, saying that, let me say one more thing here about the Reformers for now. That doesn't make the Reformers perfect in all of their doctrine, right? And it absolutely doesn't, doesn't dictate that they reformed everything according to Scripture. Their battle was on soteriology, right? Their battle was, was what, what does it mean to be Christian, to be saved, how can I be saved? How can I be right with God? That was the battleground they fought. And they fought well and gave their lives for that. And we are indebted. I mean, can you just imagine when we get to glory and we see some of those men and women, right? The men and their wives, right? And those that, that were martyred. I mean, just, I'm going to want to say something to them. And I'll probably be 
you know, tongue twisted and not be able to, um, or I'll make some stupid joke from Seinfeld or something because that's how shallow I can be, right? But, but I mean, just imagine the, the forefathers and, and mothers that went before us and enable us to be here. I, I'm sorry, I know I chased that trail, but, 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 but salvation is more than just God has good things for us. It's that we're awful and people don't like to hear that, right? But that's necessary. We have to know how we are, why we need to be saved in the first place. And, and so many people, especially in America, they have no idea, well, why do I need to be saved? They have no concept of sin because so much of our church today has washed sin under, you know, just washed it out the door, put it under the rug, that sort of thing. Does that make sense? And so, so it's important that we at least wrestle and begin to grasp the, the magnitude of what these doctrines are really saying and then find where we might fall into those ideas. So um, since we still have some time, I'm shocked. Um, I didn't think we'd make it that far, but let's, let's dig a little deeper, shall we? All right, we're going we're gonna to get some more definitions here. But first, another true and false test. Ready? Number one, God alone is the one who saves. True? All right. Number two, we cooperate with God in our efforts of salvation. That's false. That's false. That sounds right because we have to repent and believe, right? But I did that intentionally. Here's why. Let's talk about two terms. Two terms. First term is monergism, all right? And this is so important. You may not remember what it's called, but this concept is the difference between biblical Christianity and heresy. It's that important. It really is. And this is stuff we teach here. We just haven't really used this terminology very much, especially lately. We haven't. But monergism is the teaching that God alone is the one who saves. It is opposed to the next thing called synergism. And you can go ahead and throw that up there. We'll get into these a little bit here. But synergism is the teaching that we cooperate with God in our efforts of salvation. This is opposed, again, to monergism, which is the teaching that God is the sole agent involved in salvation. Now, cults are synergistic. And they are synergistic because they teach that you have to add to what God has done in order to be saved. We work along with God, perhaps. Now, some are so outright that they just say, we work and do all the work. And, you know, God's just there to welcome us, that sort of thing. That's minor. Most cults, Christian cults, theologically Christian cults, we might say, like Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witness even, um, you know, even Catholicism. Uh, what's that? Well, Pentecostalism is, would fall into that camp as well because you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved, right? At least our Pentecostalism back in the day, that was kind of the thing. Um, and, and again, just know there are some varieties among um, Christian denominations even, okay? So, um, but all of those major Christian type of movements or religions, we would categorize them as cultic because they add to salvation. Does that make sense? Now, is that saying that every Pentecostal is going to hell? Please don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that. I would never say every Catholic's going to hell either. Um, what I would question is, um, if, if one of those people were saved and they stayed there for a really long time, it would make me wonder, what do they really believe? But it's not for me to say. Um, is, that, is, that, is that fair? I mean, we all have family and friends and relations and those things. But those systems... Are bankrupt. I will say that, and I'll say that boldly and um, and compassionately at the same time. Because again, we all have family and friends who are in some of those systems. But 
if, if, if I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, which it is, right? And it's to the glory of God alone. Hey, the five solas, there you go. Those are good. Um, if I'm saved that way, then adding anything to it, cooperating in any way with my salvation, is what? Say it? It's a work. Does that make sense? And so, but you said we have to repent and believe. Yes, we do. But I wish we could go back to that, like have slide numbers, and that's okay. Where, where does the grace, faith, salvation come from? It's a gift from God. Does that make sense? And so I know somewhere our repentance and our belief in God coming from God, but it, it's required of us. And somewhere those two things line up, somewhere out on the horizon in a, in a beautiful way. All we know is what the Scriptures teach us. And I, and I think we, we, we endanger the simplicity of the gospel with our systems at times. And so, must be careful of our systems. Yes, sir. To say what? To say... Right. Well, it was a trick question. It was, devi- it was designed to, to initiate that response. You, you, you are right. However, I'm trying to think of a different way to say it. I keep wanting to say the word cooperate. Which is next week. <laughs> yeah, next, that's next week. That's going to be a doozy. We, we do repent and we do believe. We have to do those things. I don't work for it. It's not of myself. It's from Him. So... Does that make sense? I mean, there's some tension there. That's good. But, huh? Collaborate. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't like the term, either of those terms personally, because it sounds like I'm working with God for my salvation. I do have to repent and believe, but it's a gift from God. And that's the part, I don't know the right wording then. Maybe you can come up with something better. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, I don't believe that, and I'm glad you clarified that. Go ahead. The portrait that we're looking for is painted in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, they know me, they follow me, and I give them eternal life. I mean, I don't want to say it's a progression, but the sheep hear the voice of, of the shepherd in regeneration and then onward to sanctification. Okay, so here's here's a start over, Wayne, please. Okay, I think it's the process of conviction through the Holy Spirit that brings us to that point of repentance and salvation. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. This this is healthy. This is what I wanted. I wanted us to chew on this stuff. This is perfect. Okay. Speak up. I know they can't hear you. I barely can.
Okay, so, so let me say that loud, loud, louder since they probably can hear you. I'll say it for you, I think. Help me make sure I say it right. We don't cooperate in the um, securing, right, of the salvation. The procuring even, I guess you could say, right? We respond to it. How would you, how would you react to that? Okay, could y'all hear that? We cooperate with what God has done. And I, and I could even say in us or to us. We do not cooperate in the merit of the saving. Write, write that down. It'll take me too long. But write that down. I want to I wrestle with that. That may, that, may, that may work. So good. That's good. So, so here, this is the pop quiz. This isn't up there, but um, uh, uh, we'll, we'll do it next week. Never mind. All right. So, so cults are synergistic. No, no, we'll never get through any of these other things. Cults are synergistic. I want to so bad, but cults are synergistic. All right. They teach that God's grace is combined with our efforts. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Is that, is that different than how I said it earlier? Tyler's writing. I'm looking at Tyler. Okay, so um, culture synergistic in that they teach that God's grace is combined with our efforts, and that is what makes forgiveness of sin possible. So that's false, because that's, that's, we can't add that way. Does that make sense? Okay, so synergism, go back to monergism real quick. Monergism, God alone is the one who saves. This is why we say all the time, who gets the credit when someone gets saved? God, because he initiates the saving. Yes, I respond by repentance, acceptance, belief, those things. But according to Ephesians, those things are gifts from God, right? We're still together? Okay, all right. Now, next slide. This will be, this will be a hoot. It's going to be a hoot nanny up in here. You ready? Bottom line differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, I chose these two because, hey, these are the two major camps of theology. Um, when you hear words like reformed, uh, your church is reformed, or some people say your church is not reformed. I mean, we've had it from both sides. Uh, you're not reformed enough. Uh, I like to, when they started getting into those kind of things, I like to say we're still reforming um, because our eschatology is right. And, you know, I just like to go ahead and just pick at that sore and just really aggravate them. Um, you know, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, obviously, right? And so it's all in love. It's all in love and fun. But, but these are the major two camps of theology. These are the major two camps where people fall. And so you can take, say, um, say uh, let, let's start easy, Presbyterians. Presbyterians would fall in, and let's just pop quiz, which one of those two camps, let's just see what we know starting off, would Presbyterianism fall into? Calvinism, okay. Uh, Assembly of God. Arminianism, United Pentecostal, Arminianism, Methodist, Arminian, right? Baptist, both. Calvinism falls into both. What? And, and there are a lot of what's called Calvinian. That's a new term to me. That's uh, yeah. Um, but there are there are a lot that would fall somewhere in the middle there, if you will. But what what was that last statement? I thought I heard something. Okay. So you, you, you kind of see where we're headed now with this. We have different de denominations. Primarily, the issue is over salvation. Who gets the credit? How much are we involved or not involved? And then spiritual gifting would be the other thing, like from some of our backgrounds, like Pentecostalism, 
right? What gifts are inactive today and which ones are required for saving? Those are the big things. Spiritual gifting and some of these other issues could be secondary issues and not salvific related. Some groups make them salvific related. I know the camp I came from, if you didn't speak in tongues, you didn't go to heaven. Um, That's problematic doctrinally, but just because someone falls in that Arminian line is what I'm trying to get at, doesn't mean they're a heretic, okay? It doesn't necessitate them being a heretic. They've got some dangerous theology, potentially, all right? But it doesn't make them a heretic. So let's go through these real quick because I just saw what time it was. All right, so, oh, that's really small. Oh, my goodness, I messed up. That did not look like that on my screen. When I sent it here, it combined like, like one, two, three, four slides. Those are supposed to be, that's supposed to be four different slides. So, so let, me, let me just kind of read what's up there, and then I'll make these. I'm not going to read it from that screen. I don't think I can even read that. I'm going to read it from right here, and then you can fill in the blanks when I give you these notes, all right? So total depravity, it's been called some other things, but this is the ideal that man is completely touched and affected by sin in all that he is. In nature, he is completely fallen, but is not as bad as he could be in action. For instance, we don't all murder, right? Um, I've been angry enough with someone before, but I haven't acted and murdered them. So I could be worse. Does that make sense? That's the ideal of total depravity. And so it says that humans are not completely devoid of good impulses. I mean, even think about like the Mormons that we know. Um, and again, this is not to be condescending to you if you have any watching this later. Um, but, but works don't get us to heaven. But Mormons are the nicest people you'll ever meet. They go above and beyond. They're courteous. They're clean. They're, I mean, just clean. Not that cleanliness is godliness, obviously, but you know what I mean. Um, they don't smell funny, all those kind of things. But, but, <laughs> so we have, we do have what we might call, I've got tickle. I'm sorry, go ahead. Utter. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's good. It doesn't mean we're utterly depraved, okay? But we are told every part of our, our nature, our being, is depraved. And obviously, various levels. Again, to think of murdering someone is, is different. I know what Jesus said in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's a point there. But if, I, if I'm thinking about murdering Tyler, that's different than if I actually do murder Tyler. I mean, you have to see that there is a difference between the thought and the actual act. Okay. What's that? Yeah, anything. Self-righteousness. Anything. Now, it's not good for me to want to murder Tyler. I'm not making an excuse for that, obviously. All right? But I'm just saying, for me to think about it is not as depraved as I could be. I could actually murder him. I don't know why I'm picking on you, Tyler, but... I don't want to. I kind of like you. In fact, I I like you a lot. And I don't think I could without a little assistance. Anyway. uh, (laughs) But um, we could all be worse. That's the the point. So all people are engulfed in sin to such a degree that we cannot do anything to earn merit before God. That's the ideal of total depravity. I, I believe that's a biblical concept. That's a biblical reality. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. We can't all get together and save ourselves. Now, again, depending on how Calvinistic someone may be versus the other extreme over here in Arminianism, they may define some of this differently. But pretty much across the board in conservative Christianity, this is 
the north. Now, the Arminian camp originally stated it this way, though. Man is totally affected by sin and all that he is. But with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the unbeliever is capable of freely choosing God. Now, all of that definition is not bad. But that is the historic position of Arminianism. And again, there are varieties and shades and degrees of these, of these definitions. And so, that's why I hate lumping people as Calvinists. All hyper-Calvinists. Arminianists. I hate just lumping people because there's a variety of beliefs in these extremes. But, well, I was fixing a point at the words. I don't think you can see it. The, the real issue is two words in that definition, I would say. Freely choosing, I think. Right? Man is totally affected by sin. True. In all that he is. True. With the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the unbeliever is capable of choosing God. That's better. Right? The, 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 the issue is that we don't freely choose. If, we're, if we freely choose anything, what does that make us? It makes us God, basically. It makes us sovereign. Now, I know, again, how we define these are going to be where we fall on the spectrum. But, but the Holy Spirit does act on us. Wayne mentioned it earlier. Regeneration. Conviction. I don't just all of a sudden go, man, you know what? I'm a big old sinner. I mean, in, when I was a sinner, I loved my sin. And my sinning, I did. I didn't want to be saved. Something had to happen from outside of me. And so we're going to get to that more next week. Here's unconditional election. And so I'm giving you the T-U-L-I-P, the tulip. This is what is labeled as Calvinism today. Ah, but is it? We're going to see here in just a moment, if time allows. Unconditional election says this. God's choice of certain persons to salvation does not depend on any foreseen virtue on their part but rather is based entirely on God's sovereignty. Romans 9, Romans, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, God chose, right? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So, unconditional election, biblical? I, I think it's absolutely biblical. I, I used to hate this. I didn't like it, but it was still true, right? Now I love it because I realize if God hadn't picked me, I certainly would not be saved, right? I mean, I, I think that's true of any of us. Now, Arminianism has historically said this. Election to salvation is conditioned upon God's foreseen faith in the person. Meaning, he looked through time and saw that Brock was going to choose him, and so he foreknew him and elected him to be saved. Folks, that's, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. Foreknowledge, pro orizzo, that's more, oh, I've got meatball in my, in my mind here. That's my Italian. Um, but that, that Greek word um, does not mean to, 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 to look through the corridor of time and, and see how things are going to play out, like knowing what's going to happen in advance. It's not, God, God's not uh, Miss Cleo, okay? And that's not what that word means. That means, that word meant and, and should still mean today as it was used scripturally, to foreknow, it means that God was intimately knowledgeable of you. He knew you as a husband knows his wife on their wedding night. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a cho choice. What's that? That's right. That's exactly right. In the Septuagint, uh, in Genesis, where you talk about Adam and Eve lying together to procreate. There's no kids in here. All right, well, it's still, it's a nice way to say it. Um, I can't believe I'm saying these things. I'm commentating on my own sentences. I am so sorry. But yes, that's the same language that's used. He foreknew, he knew her intimately. 
That's, that's the ideal. So it's not a knowledge that God says, you're going to choose me, heart, so I'm going to pick you. It's not like Red Rover, Red Rover. It's not that kind of thing. And that's what we relegate it to when we, when we say that he just looks through time and says, okay, um, you're going to like me, you're going to like me. Okay, I'm going to pick you for my team. That's not how God operates. That makes me sovereign over whether I'm going to be saved or not. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's God's saving. And so that Arminian ideal there is, is incorrect as it's worded. Now, irresistible grace. i got to speed up here. Irresistible grace says, and it's known by some other terms as well, but those whom God has chosen for eternal life will, as a result of God's irresistible grace, come to faith and thus come to salvation. Take John 1, 12 through 13. We, we looked at last week, right? Take um, John 6, 28 and 29, if you want to just jot some down. I'm going to let you read these. So John 1, 12 and 13, John 6, 28 and 29. But irresistible grace says that if God has elected us, if he foreknew us before the foundation of the world and determined who, who, who he's going to save, that means that we will be saved. Does that make sense? That means his grace is such that it can't be resisted. Think about Paul, Paul or Saul, Saul. Why are you kicking against the goads? I mean, you're right, that's the ideal. You can't resist God. God is, he's the sovereign. That's, that's the thing. And again, before we're saved, and even some people who are saved, um, we, we wrestle with these, these ideals of unconditional election and irresistible grace because we want to hold on to some of the power. Does that make sense? We want to be part of the, the saving of ourselves. And I don't know that everyone's cognizant about that, but that, I think it really comes down to that. I think it's that simple. There's pride involved that we want to do something for ourselves. So Arminianism, they have what's called resistible grace, that the sinner can successfully resist the grace of God and not be regenerated when God convicts that person. So this was, this was the battle that was going on. Um, it, again, it began around 1060-something, 10, 10 really kind of 1091, if I remember right. But it really came to a head in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. Really, 1415. When you think about Martin Luther and some of those guys, they really stuck their necks out on the line to really dive into the, the, the peril that the church was teaching concerning how we're saved. So, perseverance of the saints... I don't like the way this is termed personally, um, but I didn't coin the phrase, but this is the classic Calvinistic so-called phrase. Um, Perseverance of the saints says that those who are genuine believers will endure in the faith to the end. Let me give you some proof text. John 6, 47. John 10, 27 and 28. John 10, 27, 28. Romans 8, 1. That's enough. There's some others I'll give you later. So... This is, some call it eternal security. Um, uh, I, I like the, using the word perseverance, I like the perseverance of the Savior um, because it's God that saves us and keeps us saved, amen? That's just me. Um, the ideal, I think, is the same. The God who initiates our salvation will see it through. Oh, Philippians 1, um, um, 6, thank you. He who began a good word, who said that? Philippians 1, 6. Oh, oh it's up there, okay, good. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He'll finish the job. Um, he'll finish the job. So, um, perseverance of the saints is true. Um, Arminianism says, though, it's possible to fall away from the faith and lose one's salvation. And so you see that in Methodism. 
Uh, you see it in the Assembly of God movement, Pentecostal movement. You see it in uh, uh, Church of Christ. That's right. I forgot about Church of Christ. Um, you know, there are some Baptist circles. I can't remember if it's primitive. Is it? Do you know, Mr. Wayne, is it primitive Baptist? There are some Baptist circles that believe that as well, um, that you can lose your salvation. The Catholic Church definitively believes that. Um, they hold, hold it over your head constantly. But that's what happens in all of the denominations with this idea. You have to do enough and keep being good enough in order to stay saved. And so they hold that over your head. Um, you know, used to be, I, I guess going back to uh, my Pentecostalism, used to be if you had a TV in your house, you lost your salvation, right? And I remember as a kid hearing that, and my grandma had a TV in her house. And I'm like, I don't understand. My grandma was a sweet lady. And uh, except when my dad got around, then they would kind of go to blows, right? But uh, um, you don't, we don't lose our, our salvation. It's not based on us. It's not based on what we do. It's based on God. So I don't, I don't believe that Arminian position is, is, is um, good or right. Now, we did T, we did U, we did I, we did P. What did we miss? We missed L. Aha! Uh -huh. You know why I skipped L here? Because Calvin did not teach L the way it's taught today in his name. He did not. He wrestled with it. And early on, he struggled more so with it. But by the end of his life, I believe he settled. And I believe he was of what we would call an unlimited atonement rather than a limited. That term is dangerous too because it... It leads some to believe in a universal salvation, but that is not biblical. Everybody will not be saved, but there's no L. And here, let me just give you a couple quick things. Do you have just a few more minutes? <clears throat> Let's see if these quotes are big enough to, to read. Yes, all right. Calvin, he has employed the universal term whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. That's John Calvin. That's in his Gospel of John commentary. Commentary on John, I think is what it's called. Uh, here's another one. <clears throat> Such is also the import of the term world, which he formerly used, quote, God so loved the world, for um, though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception, quote, not merely without distinction, end quote, to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than an entrance into life. End quote. And that's also from the Gospel of John. What does that sound like just so far? Limited or unlimited? That's unlimited. It's unlimited. He goes on to say, this is, um, I, don't, I don't have this as in one of his Gospel works commentaries as well. I don't remember which one it is because this one I took out of one of my textbooks called Calvin and the English Calvinism. And it's on page 16 if you happen to have that book. Calvin and the English Calvinism. Quote, For God commends to us the salvation of all men without exception, even as Christ suffered for the sins of the whole world. End quote. Folks, that's unlimited atonement that Calvin was pushing for. Calvin stated in his commentary to Romans, chapter 5, verse 18, he, now it's Christ in the context, he makes his favor common to all because he propounded it to all, end quote. And then he goes on to say, quote, Christ suffered for the sins of the whole world and is offered through God's benignity indiscriminately to all, yet all do not receive him, end quote. Again, that's unlimited atonement. However, he adds something right there. What is it? Someone has to what? Receive it. Do you see that? Someone has to receive it. John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Regarding that verse, John Calvin said this, quote, again from his commentary of the Gospel of John, 
Quote, God is unwilling that we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because he has appointed his son to be the salvation of the world, end quote. Then he goes on to say, quote, the word world is again repeated that no man may think himself wholly excluded if he only keeps the road of faith, end quote. We have a will, yes, we have a will. And I'm okay with that term too. Not that I'm the judge, obviously, but a sense of free will, he's saying. I, I, I like the word just the will. We don't know what he knows. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He, says, he says in there, there's a sense of our free will. Well, Yeah. Now, if, if someone who wanted to argue with you might say, are you saying then that we're robots? And that's, you always hear that in these circles. To, to who? Well, and that's, that's a good way to answer that, actually. That really is. Remember, we have a will. Our will is bound to our nature, right? What's that? We do what we, that's right, we do what we desire. And, and just to specify, we do what our nature desires, ultimately. But we do exactly what we desire. That's right, Miss Judy. And so my, Romans chapter 6, that's the whole chapter. Romans chapter 6. Huh? Don't point at her. Your wife can do what she wants to do. Okay, easy, easy. It's true, okay. I think I do that to my wife. Even though you're kicking against the goats, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so real quick. Did Calvin embrace or change and embrace limited atonement later in life? I've actually saw today on a website uh, someone claiming this. Well, here's the answer. He did not. Um, his last testimony, his last declaration... Uh, and, and I guess his last will and testament, it's recorded. He says, I testify and declare that I humbly implore of him to grant me to be washed and purified by the blood of that sovereign redeemer, shed for the sins of the human race, that I may be permitted to stand before the tribunal in the image of the redeemer himself. Folks, can any of us want more than that? That's, that's the heart of a Christian. Amen. It's, I mean, when we stand before God, it's his grace that allow us to be there, Right. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that was his, his that was in uh, Tract 7 Treatises. Uh, there's, you can read all of the little, no, you can't. I'll give it to you, uh, the, all the chapters. It's all in Roman numerals, so don't, don't get me bogged down trying to understand that. Now, let me just say this, and then I'll be done, I promise. What, what people typically, huh? What typical, okay, believe and identify as Calvinism is not Calvinism. The issue that people have when they start thinking about God chose some to go to hell and those kind of ideas, what they're believing is Bezianism. That guy, Theodore Beza, B-E-Z-A, if you want to research him. Late 1500s, he was, he, was a, he was a student of Calvin. After Calvin was gone, he actually took over uh, the role that Calvin took, but he went way further than John Calvin ever did in Geneva or elsewhere. And Theodore Beza, writing in the late 1500s, early 1600s, um, taught limited atonement. In fact, it was him and John Owen. And I love John Owen. But John Owen, the death of death and the death of Christ, I believe. I went back and, because I've read that before in the past, I went back and was skimming through it. And absolutely, it's there. John Owen and Theodore Beza were the, the original, 
uh, poster boys, if you will. It may have been taught elsewhere, but they were the two that made limited atonement popular. The idea that God only died for the elect, that Christ only died for the elect. It was not in vogue before then. In fact, none of the other reformers in that day taught such a con- in Calvin's day. None of them taught such things except Theodore Beza and um, um, John Owen, thank you. And then men after them came along teaching the same thing. But they were the ones that pushed that, not John Calvin. I think Calvinism is wrongly tainted today by Bezianism. Bezianism. The early followers of what we call Calvinism today were truly four-pointers, according to the tulip diagram, if you will. They were limited in the atonement. Now, saying that, what Calvin himself taught, and maybe we can get into this next week, was that that ideal that you do hear a lot of Calvinists say today, even limited atonement, that the cross of Christ was sufficient for all, but efficient only to the elect. So is that true or false? I mean, I, I've never been able to pick that apart either. Again, not that I'm the authority, but that's well worded. But here, here's the deal. Limited atonement Calvinists use that phrase. That originated with unlimited atonement Calvinists. Yes, sir. It is. Thank you. Thank you. That drives me crazy. Yes. It contradicts that very phrase that they hold to. I, I, don't, I don't get it. And again, I'm not the smartest, sharpest tool in the shed. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, I know. But it doesn't make sense. It's never made sense to me. That's why I've, I've resisted those labels for so long, um, depending on what circles we're in, right? Uh, but the truth is that the Word of God is correct. Amen? And so, like what we started um, with Dr. Leitner's quote, um, let us be biblicists. And above all things, above all cost, when and where... This position conflicts with man-made systems of theology. Let it. And let's choose to follow the Bible. Amen? That's all, that's all I want us to do. And, and that means that from time to time, we'll all be corrected in our theologies. Because 